afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to our Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar. We are featuring tonight lesson number 12, and I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, what an amazing privilege we have to open your word tonight. Lord, we come before you with praise and thanksgiving, asking that the Holy Spirit can guide us, can lead us into all truth and be our teacher. We submit our minds to you and to your word that we will search out the deep things of God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus and Holy Spirit, that we can speak to you in this way and ask for your help, guidance, direction and blessing. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. Well, I'd like to welcome you all to our Prophecy Seminar lesson tonight. Um, you don't need a lesson to, uh, to be able to get through this tonight. You can just enjoy the visual feed. So before we get into the lesson, I'd like to do a little bit of revision. So if you have a look on the screen, the big question tonight is, uh, is anyone like playing Scrabble? I guess that doesn't look exactly like Scrabble, but maybe a little bit. We're asking the question tonight is, how did Saturday turn into Sunday? We're asking, did you ever wonder how the biblical day of worship got changed and if it was done by God or not? A little recap on last week's lesson because it's foundational. Lesson 11 last week was foundational to what we're going to study tonight. Friends, last week we looked at the attempted change of the Sabbath and found out that God himself does not change. We found out his Ten Commandment law has never changed. And then in the New Testament, we found that Jesus Christ himself kept the Sabbath. He never actually ever stopped keeping the Sabbath. Well, did the apostles change the Sabbath? And we went through that exhaustively and found that no, they didn't. We found the New Testament church made no changes and that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote two thirds of the New Testament, actually said there'd be a falling away from the truth. It's also interesting that the Church of Rome clearly claims to have changed the day from Saturday to Sunday. So, friends, with the fourth commandment damage, which is a hinge between the first four commandments, our duty to God, and the last six, our duty to man, this has damaged and defaced God's law because that fourth commandment links us to God and it links us to humankind. And so the fourth commandment, if it's been damaged and changed, then that's a very, very serious thing that's happened. So here we are on the front cover. If you would like to read with me, if you've been able to do your lesson during the week, kick back and enjoy yourself and just enjoy the visual feed. And we're going to go through it again with you tonight. Our lesson is entitled, Did God Authorize the Little Horn to Change His Sabbath? I read from the front cover. Lesson 11 has revealed the astonishing fact that there's been a 
purported change in God's law regarding his Sabbath. Someone has tried to change God's original Seventh-day Sabbath. Today, most Christians keep Sunday, the first day of the week. Our last lesson revealed very clearly that the Bible indicated that God has made no change in the Sabbath. It is a part of the eternal, changeless Ten Commandment law of God. It originated in the Garden of Eden and will be kept on the new earth. And it is God's special sign of a relationship with him. In fact, the purpose of the Sabbath is to provide people with time to build this solid relationship with God. And so the question comes, does the little horn power of Daniel 7.25 have the authority to change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, as the last lesson showed that he's attempted to do? In this lesson, we want to examine every possible New Testament evidence that would even remotely suggest the possibility of the change of the Sabbath. We will examine every text in the New Testament that mentions the first day of the week, and there are only eight. Friends, as we go through looking for these eight first day texts tonight, before we do it, we really need to just ask Rome, what was the Church of Rome's part in changing the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week? I'm going to Faith of Our Fathers, page 111, 112. This was written by Catholic Cardinal James Gibbons, and this is what he wrote. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. He goes on to say the scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. The rest of his quote is, that's a day we, the Church of Rome, never keep. In Clovis G. Chappelle's book, 10 Rules for Living, page 61, this is an insightful revelation. He wrote, the reason we observed the first day instead of the seventh day is based on no positive command. One will search the scriptures in vain for authority for changing from the seventh day to the first. Let's go back in time over a hundred years to the Catholic record on the 17th of September, 1893. The Church of Rome very proudly says Sunday is founded not on scripture, but on tradition and is distinctly a Catholic institution. So friends, I'd like to ask you tonight, what would actually be needed to prove that Sunday, the first day of the week, is actually the new day of worship? I think there's three points that aren't brought up in the lesson that I'd like to share with you now. Number one, we're looking for a specific text a specific command by someone in authority who would have to be equal with God to be able to obliterate the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath came in with a blaze of glory on Sinai? We're looking for something like that. Number two, we'd need a specific new commandment to observe the first day of the week as a new day of worship. And number three, we would also need clear examples of Sunday worship by New Testament Christians led by the apostles. Well, let's go to our five theme questions. 
what are we going to discover in tonight's lesson? Number one, what did the little horn power try and change? I think most of you know the answer to that after three or four lessons. Number two, do the eight first day texts prove that Sunday is an holy day? Three, was the Sabbath ever abolished at the cross of Jesus Christ? Four, did the Apostle Paul ever keep the Sabbath in non-Jewish non worship services? And number five, who changed the Sabbath to Sunday? So friends, would you join me? We're in lesson 12 tonight. Did God authorize the little horn to change his Sabbath? Our first heading is Sunday in the New Testament. We're going to question one. Thanks so much for joining us. God bless you all and thank you for your prayers and support. Question one says, would the little horn power actually change God's times and laws? Daniel 7.25. Daniel wrote about the little horn power. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. We went into a lot more detail in this. If you want to know more about that, back in lesson and session number nine. So would the little horn actually change God's times and laws? Well, he intended to change God's times and laws. The King James says he thought or he thinks he can change God's times and laws. But friends, can I say very clearly tonight that the change that he has made is not recognized by heaven. The law of God, the fourth commandment, is not changed. God does not recognize this attempt to change his eternal law. The note said, he doesn't do it. He only thinks he does it. I'd like to draw your attention to the screen. I have an amazing quote. So we need to now search deeper and ask the Church of Rome, did they really change the day? We've had a number of quotes, but let's have a definitive quote. The Pope is of so great authority and power that he can modify, explain or interpret even divine laws. The Pope can modify even divine law since his power is not of man, but of God. And he acts as vice regent of God upon earth. End of quote. Taken from Lucius Ferraris, Prompter Bibliotecra, Article 2, Papa. Friends, another quote from the Church of Rome, the Pope has power to change times, to abrogate means to nullify, to negate. The Pope has power to change times, to abrogate laws, and to dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. Precepts is another word for rules, laws, and commandments. Please join me in question two in our lesson guide. So we're asked what actually happened on the first day of the week. We're going to now look at five first day texts and see if there's any change in the day of worship. So let's go to our first one. We're going to Matthew 28 verses 1, 2, 9 and 10. In the end of the Sabbath, so the Sabbath is over, the sun is set, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, so that's the next morning, the Saturday night, and then we've got the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. That's an old English word for tomb or grave. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it, and 
told his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I've told you before. Verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Verse 10. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go and tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there they see me. Well, friends, the first day a text is mentioned. There's nothing about a new day of worship. So let's go to the second and third first day text. We find them in Mark 16, verses 1, 2, and 9. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome or Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. Now, when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he'd cast seven devils. So, friends, again, just a narrative, just the story, no changes. Let's go to Luke 23, 56, and then Luke 24, 1 and 2. It's speaking about the women who were last at the cross and uh, first at the tomb. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and then, of course, the sunset. And so they rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Now, upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulchre, bringing spices, which they prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulchre. So, friends, there's the fourth first day text. So we're actually asking, is there any change in the day of worship? In fact, there is no change in the day of worship. And if we go back to verse 56, it actually tells us which day of worship is still in vogue. And they, who's they? Let's go back to 16.1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. So there are three of the women. So verse 56 of Luke 23, and they returned. They went home and they prepared spices and ointments. And then they rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Now, upon the first day of the week. So, friends, you can see very clearly the seventh day Sabbath is still there. Now, if I'd been there, I would have said, you know what? Don't worry about the Sabbath. Jesus' body is more important. So let's anoint his body after the sunset. It doesn't matter. The Sabbath's come in. It's Friday night after sunset. Let's anoint his body and not do that. But that would have been wrong because Jesus never gave any instruction that the Sabbath was to be done away with when he died. And so... Those who were last at the cross and first at the tomb, they rest the Sabbath day according to the commandment. How can there be any new day of worship when these women who were closest to Jesus have kept the Sabbath commandment as have the other disciples? Let's go to the fifth first day text in John 20 and verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark under the sepulchre and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre or the tomb. Friends, in the Sabbath versus Sunday discussion, we need to remember the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, says she changed the day very clearly and proudly from Saturday to Sunday. Secondly, we've discovered the disciples kept the seventh day Saturday Sabbath straight after Jesus died. See Luke 23, 56. We just read it. 
Thirdly, there was no evidence yet, and we've looked at five out of the eight first day texts in the New Testament for any type of first day or any Sunday sacredness. That takes us to our answer for question two. What happened on the first day of the week? The answer is that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what happened on the first day of the week. The note said, here are the first five texts that mention the first day of the week. In not one single instance is there any indication of the fact that we are to keep this day now in honor of the resurrection. Each of the texts state that the historical truth that Jesus rose on the first day of the week. That's interesting. Now, friends, I want you to have a look at the screen. I've got some extra information that's not in your lesson. Please look at the screen. So I'd like to give you this extra uh, that will be helpful to what we're discussing here. There are two basic reasons why each gospel writer makes a point of the fact that Christ rose on the first day of the week. None of them were trying to prove that the resurrection wanted a, warranted a new day of worship. Instead, they were trying to prove these two points. One, that Christ fulfilled the prediction about rising on the third day. Therefore, they make it clear that he died on Friday, rose on Sunday, the third day exactly as he said he would. The second point is just as important, that Jesus was fulfilling the Old Testament ceremonial types. Therefore, he died on the Passover, Nisan 14, as you can see there in the Jewish calendar, and he rose on the Feast of Firstfruits, Nisan 16. So each gospel writer wished to make it very clear that Jesus rose according to his prediction and that he fulfilled all of the ancient ceremonial feast days or types in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about that soon. Emphasizing these points helped the disciples prove that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. There was no attempt by the disciples to indicate that Christ had changed the day of worship. Now, what's significant here, and you might like to write this text into your lesson guide, in John 19.31, this particular Sabbath, the crucifixion Sabbath, was a special day. The New Living Translation says the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath. So it's crucifixion. Uh, it's uh, the day of the crucifixion, Good Friday. So they don't want the bodies hanging there on the next day, which is the seventh day Sabbath. And it says it was a very special Sabbath because it was the Passover. I think the King James says it was a high day. Why was it a high day? It was a double Sabbath. It was a seventh day Sabbath, but it was also a ceremonial Sabbath because the Passover was being celebrated. So you can imagine and you can understand now why the Jews did not want any bodies hanging on crosses over the Sabbath time. Come back to uh, question number three and uh, we go to uh, the same text. What day is mentioned as coming before the first day of the week? So we're in Matthew 28, 1 and 2, Mark 16 and Luke 23. Friends, we've already looked at these texts. So what we're going to do is we're going to just quickly summarize what day is mentioned as coming before the first day of the week. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn. So which day precedes first day of the week? The day of the sun, Sunday, that would be the Sabbath. Next text, Mark 16, 1 and 2. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, the three women um, came there in verse 2, very early in the morning on the first day of the week. So there's the first day of the week. What day is mentioned as coming and preceding it? 
very clearly the seventh day Sabbath. Luke 23.56, it says they return and prepare spices and fragrant oils for sunset. They then rest on the Sabbath, Friday night and Saturday, according to the commandment. And what follows in verse 1 now on the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday, the day of the sun, Sunday, that follows. It's very clear what day is mentioned as coming before the first day of the week. The answer is the seventh day Sabbath. In most of the texts that mention the first day of the week, the Bible writers make it clear that the Sabbath was the day before the day of the resurrection, not the day of the resurrection. As you see on the screen, we have the Friday, the preparation day, also known as Good Friday, the crucifixion day. We have Sunday, the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection. The day that falls between them is God's seventh day Sabbath, which is Saturday and always has been as we've shared with you in previous lessons we're at the bottom of page two and question four what's the bible memorial of the death burial and resurrection of jesus christ friends this is a very very important point because protestants today actually say that they honor sunday and they keep the first day of the week in honor of the what do you know what the answer is i guess some of you are saying the resurrection and rome also speaks about uh, the Church of Rome speaks about Resurrection Sunday. So let's say, see what God's word say, says. What is the Bible memorial of the death, burial and resurrection of Christ? Paul says to the church at Rome in Romans 6, 3 to 6, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What does that mean? Well, the next verse is going to explain it. Paul says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. So, friends, when we are baptized according to the Bible form of baptism, which is immersion to go totally under the water, we stand there and we take a final breath before we are very gently lowered down into the water and so before you go down into the water you take a last breath and there's the similarity between baptism and dying you take a last breath therefore we were buried with jesus christ through baptism into death that just as christ was raised he was resurrected from the dead by the glory of the father even so we should walk in newness of life so paul says when we come up out of the water we come up to a new born again life verse five for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this that our old man the old man of sin was crucified with him, Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Friends, what's the Bible memorial of the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Some would suggest it's by keeping Sunday, the first day of the week. This is not what the Bible actually says. The Bible says that the symbol uh, is very clearly baptism. Why? Because in death, we take our last breath and at baptism, we take a last breath before we go under the water and we die to our old sinful way of life. And then we're resurrected to the new life, the born again life. God has already given us a memorial of the crucifixion and resurrection. It's baptism. God never gave people authority to institute 
another memorial which would destroy the Sabbath memorial that God gave at creation. Well, friends, as we go to question number five, some would suggest in John 20 verse 19, another first day text that they're actually having a worship service. So let's get to the bottom of this and let's investigate it thoroughly. We're going to John 20, 19. Why were the disciples assembled together on the first day of the week? We go to John 20, 19. Notice this is the sixth first day text. The sixth first day text, very important text. John writes, then the same day at evening being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. So friends, we've got to ask, is this a worship service? So the disciples are meeting together. It happens to be the first day of the week, but it's not a church service. They're actually being herded together because they're in fear of the Jews. That's what the scripture says. The disciples were not holding a meeting to honour the resurrection. They didn't even believe the resurrection was on at this point. They were meeting behind locked doors for fear that the same thing that happened to Jesus would happen to them. They were afraid for their lives. Jesus appeared to these frightened disciples on the same day that he rose from the dead. Nothing here indicates any change in the day of worship. In fact, friends, do you know why they were so afraid? The disciples were terrified that now there was an empty tomb. They would be charged for stealing Jesus Christ's body in an attempt to prove that he had risen from the dead and they were terrified that they would be rounded up, arrested and possibly crucified as well. Friends, this was no worship service. They were terrified. They were joining together to encourage each other and talk about what had happened at the crucifixion and they gathered together for fear of the Jews. Question six says, what did Paul ask the Corinthian Christians to do on the first day of the week? So friends, some have suggested in 1 Corinthians 16 too that this is a worship service based on people keeping the first day of the week, the day of the sun, Sunday. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 16 too and let's get into it, but let's get the context. So I'm going to take you back to 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1. This is the seventh out of eight first day text. It's the seventh first day text. It's very, very important. There's only eight. We've looked at six. We're now looking at the seventh. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. Paul's talking to the church in Corinth. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So friends, that's interesting, isn't it? Were they actually in a worship service and they were giving an offering? Or is Paul suggesting something different? Verse three, and when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it's fitting that I go also, they will go with me. What did Paul ask the Corinthian Christians to do on the first day of the week? He just said, on the first day of the week, let every one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. 
Can I suggest to you tonight, if you're laying something aside and storing it up, you're not actually giving an offering, you are storing an offering. So friends, this might've been the Bible's first saving campaign, save it, save money at, money, saving money at home. The note says the New Testament in the language of today very simply translates this verse this way. Each of you should lay, each of you should at home lay aside money he makes and save it. Paul was requesting money for the Jerusalem Christians who are suffering from famine. Now, I don't know if you actually had time to look at Acts 11, 27 to 30 and Romans 15, 26, but let's just have a look at Acts. I'm going to pick it up in Acts 11, 28. Join me on the screen. This isn't particularly in the lesson, just the text. Then one of them named Agabus. Agabus was kind of a prophet in Jerusalem. He stood up and showed by the Spirit, so he was under the power of the Holy Spirit, that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, and that would have been around Jerusalem, uh, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. We're in Acts 11, 29. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. So this is the area around Jerusalem. Uh, in Judea, they were undergoing a severe famine. I'm going back to the note under question six. Paul was instructing the Corinthian Christians to prepare for this offering by laying aside at home a certain amount of money each week for this special offering. Please note this was not an individual laying aside and not, a, sorry, this was an individual laying aside and not a collective laying aside at a church meeting like an offering. There's nothing in this text to indicate there was a collective laying aside at a church meeting. There's nothing in this text to indicate there was a collection occurring in church on the first day of the week. They were putting aside money for this offering that would be collected later when Paul arrived. So there's certainly no evidence there for any Sunday keeping. Now, friends, if you have any lingering doubts, let's go to a modern version. Here's the message, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4. Regarding the relief offering for poor Christians that's being collected, Paul writes, you get the same instructions I gave to the churches in Galatia. Every Sunday, each of you make an offering and put it in safekeeping. Be as generous as you can. When I get there, you'll have it ready and I won't have to make a special appeal. Then after I arrive, I'll write letters authorizing whomever you delegate and I'll send them off to Jerusalem to deliver your gift. If you think it best that I go along, I'll be glad to travel with them. So friends, eight Bible translations say that they were to store up their money, store up the offering for the Jewish Christians who were suffering famine privately or at home. Would you join me in question seven at the bottom of page three? Does Acts 27 to 11 indicate that the first day was the regular meeting day of the early church? So in this text, the eighth first day text, many have suggested here there's actually a religious meeting going on. And this is one of the first times that Sunday is being kept in the New Testament. Let's have a look at our eighth and last first day text, Acts 20, 7 to 13. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, and some suggest this is communion, therefore they're suggesting it's a worship service, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Paul was a very long preacher. I think he goes a lot longer than I do in these prophecy seminars. Verse 2. 
There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. Verse 9, we're in Acts 20, looking at the 8th first day text. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, remember that name, who was sinking into a what? A deep sleep. I hope none of you are sinking into a deep sleep as you're watching this. So Eutychus was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. You know, I've heard some critics say that this boy was just dazed and uh, he fainted, and he wasn't dead at all because the miracle's about to take place. Friends, let me ask you a question. Who wrote the book of Acts? I'm drawing on all the scholars' knowledge. I'm sure some of you are saying, Luke. Does anyone remember what job Luke had, the Apostle Luke? And some of you know that he was known as Dr. Luke. So we've got to ask here, does Dr. Luke know the difference between a dead body and a live body? I think Dr. Luke knows the difference. And he says, the boy was overcome by sleep. He's writing this. And as Paul continued speaking, Eutychus falls down from the third story. That's a long way to fall. And now he's taken up dead. Verse 10, we're in Acts 20, looking at the eighth first day text. But Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, do not trouble yourselves for his life is in him. Paul is now feeling that the breath of God has been put back to this boy. And so he's alive and he's been resurrected. Verse 11. Now, when he had come up, that's Paul, went back upstairs and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak. Wow. He's a big preacher, isn't he? Paul departs. Verse 12, and they brought the young man in alive and they were not a little comforted. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos. They're intending to take Paul on board for so he had given orders intending himself to go on foot. Friends, does Acts 20, 7 to 11 indicate the first day was the regular meeting day of the early church? We read all the verses and there's no such indication. We'd say no way. Friends, can I just remind you that without a text specifically commanding a change in the Sabbath by God, we would actually be adding a teaching to Scripture that's not there. And Revelation 22, 18 and 19 says we're not to add to God's word, neither are we to take away from God's word. Let me share with you the note. Notice when this meeting actually took place. If you look on the screen, the evening of the first day of the week. Now, in Bible times, the day was reckoned from sunset to sunset or from even to even, which is an old English word for evening to evening. And Mark 132 says at evening when the sun did set. When's evening? Evening in the Bible is sunset. Thus, the dark part of the first day of the week in biblical times would be what we call today Saturday night. The New English Bible translates this verse on the Saturday night in our assembly for the breaking of bread. This meeting did not occur on our Sunday at all, but on Saturday night. Have a look on the screen. This is not in the notes. This is a chart showing Acts 20 verse 7, exactly what we're reading. It shows that NAS, is it a Saturday night or is it a Sunday night meeting? Have a look at the top uh, line of boxes. That shows us the biblical way of reckoning days from even unto even, Leviticus 23.32, Mark 1.32. You've got the seventh day followed by the first day, second day, third day, fourth day of the week. We then have Paul's meeting where the star is. And so you can see the 20th century day way of reckoning 
uh, days from midnight to midnight shows that to be Saturday night, even though the sun has set. And so the Jews call that the first day of the week. So as soon as the sun sets on Saturday night, they then believe the seventh day of the week's ended and the first day of the week's begun. Therefore, they use the word first day. Let me share with you the note at the bottom of this chart. Maybe you can read along. According to the biblical method of reckoning the days of the week, any meeting held during the evening portion of the first day of the week would have had to be held on what we today call Saturday night, since we now reckon our days from midnight to midnight. This fact is reflected in several more modern Bible translations, such as Good News Bible, New English Bible, and even the contemporary English version, which states respectively the meeting was on Saturday night or on Saturday evening. Thus, Acts 27 lends no support to those Christians who apply this passage to prove Christians should attend church on Sunday. I'm going back to the note under question seven halfway through. Paul was having a farewell meeting for the church members. He was about to leave them. He knew that he might never see them again, and he was anxious to impart all of the counsel of God that he could. And so the scripture says that he spent the entire night from sundown to sunup preaching to them. At midnight, a very unusual thing happened when the young man Eutychus went to sleep and fell out of the third story window. When Paul went down and prayed for him, the boy was resurrected and brought up and they continued the meeting till morning. The story is the reason why this passage was recorded in the scripture. Now, friends, I was wondering, the name Eutychus is kind of very unusual. Do you know what it means? Friends, his name means fortunate. So do you think the boy was fortunate? He goes to sleep. He falls down three stories. He's taken up dead, as says Dr. Luke. And then Paul actually resurrects him back from the dead. I'd say that he was a very fortunate young man. The note says, according to, come over to the top of page four, according to verse 11, on Sunday morning, the Apostle Paul and his company departed on their journey. Now, there's a very good question here at the top of the page. Why didn't they stay for Sunday morning worship if they were, in fact, keeping Sunday? Please have a look at the screen. I want to go through uh, just explaining about Paul's missionary journey. So there in Troas, Eutychus falls out the window. You can see there in the diagram. So there he is. Now, in our map, we're at Troas, and Paul wants to move on. On the first day of the week, during the day, the day of the Sun Sunday, he wants to walk to ASOS. Now, ASOS is an Olympic marathon. It's 35 miles. He's going to walk 58 kilometers in a day. You know, the ancients were pretty fit, weren't they? They were pretty fit. So what Paul wants to do is he wants to walk across, but the boys go in the ship and that gives him the whole night to preach. And while they're sailing around, taking it a longer time, he's actually able to spend that whole night preaching to the believers there. And then he goes on to ASOS where he catches the boat and continues his missionary journey. The top of the page, the note says, some have cited this text to indicate that the regular custom of the early church was to meet on the first day of the week. But the text says nothing about it being the regular custom of the early church. The fact that Paul preached and broke bread on this day does not make the day sacred. The early church broke bread daily. 
Acts 2.46, as well as preach daily. So friends, I want to ask you, do you remember when Jesus shared and broke bread with his disciples on the Thursday night before the crucifixion? We know that as the Last Supper. It's also called the communion service or the uh, ordinances of humility with the foot washing. So I'm going to ask you, is Thursday night now sacred because Jesus had a little communion service and broke bread um, there with the disciples? Does that make Thursday night sacred? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Absolutely not. Amazingly, we've looked at every New Testament text that even mentions the first day of the week. We have not found the slightest indication of any change in the day of worship. Friends, there's no change. There's no command. There's no instruction. There's no order by Jesus Christ or the early Christian church. Please join me on the screen. I'd like to share with you some extra information. In look at it, looking at Acts 20 and verse 7, the first day, asking the first day, was it inauguration of Sunday worship? Then I have to ask you some questions for those who believe this was a worship service. Does holding a meeting make a day a Sabbath? Hmm. Number two, does holding a communion make the day it's held holy? No, it doesn't. Number three, this text is there to prove the miracle of Eutychus being raised from the dead by Paul. Four, this meeting was held on Saturday night as the commentary state. It wasn't held on Sunday night for those who say Sunday sacred. Number five, Paul walked all day Sunday to get to the Paul of Asos, 35 miles or 58 kilometers away. It's pretty fit, wasn't he? And it's an unusual way to celebrate a new day of worship if it's to be on Sunday. It's very, very curious. And number six, if this was the usual practice of New Testament worshippers, then we need every Saturday night to become a day of worship. Very, very interesting. So friends, there's our eight first day texts. We've been through all of them. And guess what? We haven't found any indication of a new day of worship or even any mention that Sunday is the new day of worship. So now we need to ask what brought about the, the change. So this is new material. Have a look on the screen. So what's going on here? We're going back to the Church of Rome to find out who and how it was changed. We have the converts catechism of Catholic doctrine. Our question is, so why can't we find a text changing the Bible Sabbath over to Sunday in the Bible? Why can't we find the text? Let's go to Carl Keating's book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism. It was published in 1988, page 38. He said it was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians. And he, he lists why. It was done in honour of the resurrection, end of quote. Friends, it was done in honour of the resurrection, even though Jesus, the disciples, and the Holy Scriptures do not ask us to keep Sunday in honour of the resurrection. The Bible asks us to keep, according to the fourth commandment, Exodus 28 to 11, remember the which day? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Going back to the converts catechism of Catholic doctrine, they have a question and answer format. They say, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, the Church of Rome answers, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question in the Catechism, why do we observe Sunday instead of Sabbath? The Church of Rome says, because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity, which means the spirituality, the authority from Saturday to Sunday. Friends, what's going on? How did this happen? 
Why, you may ask, did the Catholic Church, by its own free and open admission, institute this change? The answer lies, at least in part, in the place of authority accorded by the Roman Church to tradition. Let's go to their quote about this. Catholic belief, page 33, Joseph Farr de Bruno. Like two sacred rivers flowing from paradise, the Bible and divine tradition contain the word of God. So the Church of Rome is very clear here. The Church of Rome believes the Bible and their history of acts by the popes and the forefathers, the church fathers, called divine tradition. They're both of equal importance as God's word, even though divine tradition is done by men. Though these two divine streams are, Rome says, of equal sacredness, still of the two, tradition is to us more clear and safe. That's an amazing statement, isn't it, friends? That's a huge statement. One of the main points of difference between Protestants and Catholics, Protestants are those who broke away from the Church of Rome. You might remember King Henry VIII, the Anglicans, and Martin Luther's there in the photo. Uh, the Lutherans, they broke away. And one of the main points of difference between Protestants and Catholics during the early days of the Reformation where the churches broke away from Rome was over the authority of tradition in the church. As you can see in the illustration, when Martin Luther declared that he must follow the Bible and the Bible only, he challenged many of the institutions of the Catholic Church that were based solely on tradition. In fact, the Council of Trent was convened to decide exactly what position the Catholic Church should take on tradition and its relationship to the Bible. The question was finally settled, and I have a quote for you. Notice the summary given in the speech that turned the tide, as recorded by H. H. Holzman in his book, Canon Tradition, page 263. Finally, at the last opening on the 18th of January, 1562, in the Council of Trent, all hesitation was set aside. The Archbishop of Reggio, or Reggio, made a speech in which he openly declared that tradition stood above scripture. He was saying, we don't need to even argue about this. What did he come up with? He said the authority of the Church of Rome could therefore not be bound to the authority of the Holy Scriptures. Why? Because the Church had already changed the Sabbath into Sunday. So, friends, he made a very logical point. Why are we even debating whether we're going to follow Scripture or whether we're going to follow divine tradition? We're already following divine tradition because the Church has changed the Sabbath into Sunday. The end of that quote is, and he said, not by a command of Christ, but by the church's own authority. Friends, that is a huge call by the Church of Rome to change God's word. What's swung the pendulum when all seemed at a standstill? The church changed God's law. It was the fact the church had in effect changed one of God's commandments on the authority of tradition. You know, Protestants may be even more surprised than Catholics over this particular revelation in history. You know, Roman Catholics have long taken pride in what they believe to be the authority of their church to interpret scripture in the light of tradition. On the other hand, Protestants have always held to sola scriptura, which means the Bible and the Bible only. We must add nothing to scripture. Give me holy scripture over tradition. 
any day is what I say. So friends, we are now at the next heading, was the Sabbath abolished? And before we get back into the lesson, I'd like to take you on a little journey and give you some extra material to just explain a little bit more of what's going on. We're asking the question, was the Sabbath abolished? So Sunday keepers and critics of the Seventh Day Sabbath, and there are many, they come up with two particular texts where they say that the Seventh Day Sabbath was done away with. Now, if you look it down there on the screen, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, we are going to look that up in actually question 10. So that's covered. But the other text they claim, Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, is not covered by the lesson. So I'm going to take you now to that text. Um, you can write that down on the side of your margin um, by the heading, Was the Sabbath Abolished? Right in there, Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. And I'm going to take you through it. Let's have a look and see, was the Seventh-day Sabbath abolished? In Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. Who wrote the book of Ephesians? I think you know, the Apostle Paul. Here we are in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. Let's get the context. Brought near by his blood. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh. What are Gentiles? Gentiles are all the nations of the earth who aren't Jews. Therefore, remember that you, non-Jews in the flesh, that at that time you were without Christ, meaning outside of Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, you were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul's saying, previously, under Jewish law, people who weren't Jews, they were lost, according to the Jews anyway. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, we ought to say amen to that because we are not literal Jews. We are spiritual Jews in our hearts, in following God's word, but we're not literal Jews. So we have been brought close to God through the blood of Jesus. Can you all say amen? The next section is entitled Christ Our Peace. We're in Ephesians 2. We're going to look at verse 14, 15 and 16. What's the seventh day Sabbath done away with here in the commandments? Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, for he himself, referring to who? Jesus Christ is our peace, who has made both one. What uh, Paul is speaking about there is the Jew and the Gentile were separated by something that made them hate each other. Why were the Jew and Gentile made one person? For Jesus Christ is our peace, who has made both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is something hateful, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Friends, can you see those words in blue? What is that middle wall of separation that kept Jews and Gentiles separate? Well, friends, in Ephesians 2.14, Jesus is referring, pardon me, Paul is here referring to the fact that Jesus himself, who is our peace, made the Jew and Gentile one new man, a Christian, and broke down the middle wall of partition. The middle wall of partition is the wall around the inner sanctuary in Jerusalem. And the court of the Gentiles was that Gentile non-Jews could not go inside. They could not go in there. You'll notice there that inside the beautiful gate there is the court of women. Women are allowed in there, but then there's the court of Israel, the inner sanctuary, but non-Jews weren't even allowed inside there at all. Let's have a look at a 3D view. Here is the uh, holy place. 
you can see the women's courtyard and outside you'll see the description Gentiles courtyard uh, on the uh, the bottom side on the right hand side Gentiles courtyard outside the gate on the top side Gentiles courtyard between the chamber of lepers and chamber of wood so friends this was the wall of separation for Jesus himself is our peace and he made the two warring parties both one new man and has broken down the middle wall of separation because Jesus Christ abolished he did away with in his flesh when he died on the cross the enmity the hateful thing that is the law of commandments now if it just stopped there I'd say it's the ten commandments but it tells us which law of commandments that is the law of commandments contained in what ordinances what's ordinances it's an old english word for rituals and ceremonies the law of commandments contained in ordinances were all the jewish laws that kept them separate from gentiles and there were all the meat offerings and sin offerings and trespass offerings and peace offerings etc so jesus when he died on the cross he took with him to the cross the old ceremonial law of moses and he nailed it to the cross I'll read it again, having abolished in his flesh, verse 15, the enmity, the hateful thing that kept Jew and Gentile apart, that is the law of commandments contained in rituals, ordinances, ceremonies, so as to create in himself one new man. Who's the one new man? Jew and Gentile are no longer terms anymore. The one new man is a born again Christian in Jesus Christ, amen? One new man from the two, thus making peace between the warring parties. 16 that he might reconcile them both to god in one body through the cross therefore putting to death the enmity or the hatred that existed between them friends i'm going to now read the note under was the sabbath abolished please follow along on the screen certain texts in the new testament have indicated that certain sabbaths are no longer kept in the new testament church this has confused people into thinking that the New Testament was not concerned about the seventh-day Sabbath. However, there were two kinds of Sabbaths mentioned in the Old Testament. There were the ceremonial feast days, and they were Sabbaths, and the seventh-day Sabbath. So friends, I'm going to take you on another journey now and give you some extra information. Thank you so much for doing your lesson. And we're going to ask the question, were the seventh-day Sabbaths the only Old Testament Sabbath days? And the answer is no. Have a look on the screen. There were seven Old Testament yearly feast days, also called ceremonial Sabbaths. And here they are on the screen. The Passover, Days of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, and the last great day. You can see there the months of the year, Nisan, Iyar, Sivan, Tammuz, etc. Nisan, Passover and unleavened bread were uh, were uh, celebrated then. And down the bottom, you have the months of the year that we have, the flax and barley harvest in March, then there's April, May, June. And that is a comprehensive chart of the Old Testament ceremonial Sabbaths. These were the seven Old Testament feast days or ceremonial Sabbaths. Friends, the problems with the word Sabbath is there is a seventh day Sabbath, but there's also the Old Testament ceremonial Sabbaths. And so people pull a law out of a pot and they don't know where it comes from. So the ones that were done away with the cross, they think all the laws were done away with at the cross. So let's understand what were the two major bodies of law. The two major divisions of divine law are very simple. You can see them on the screen. 
There are the Ten Commandment laws written on stone, the moral precepts. Then on the right-hand side, there are the ceremonial precepts written in the law of Moses on that book or that scroll that you can see in the middle of the page. So we have the Ten Commandments, the moral law. We have the law of Moses, the ceremonial law. These are two bodies of law, different laws. The Ten Commandments, the moral law came before sin and actually tells us what sin is. That's why we spent so much time on the Ten Commandments in lesson number 10. Then in the law of Moses, the ceremonial law of rituals and ordinances, the law of Moses comes after sin, after Adam and Eve sin, and defines the remedies. The Ten Commandments were spoken by God, but the law of Moses was given and spoken by Moses. The Ten Commandments were written by God. The other law was written by Moses. The Ten Commandments were written on stone. The law of Moses was written in a book of the law. The Ten Commandments were kept inside the ark, not Noah's ark, the gold box, the Ark of the Covenant, whereby the law of Moses was kept in an outside pocket of the Ark. The Ten Commandments was totally complete. It was done, it was written on stone, it was finished. But the law of Moses, the ceremonial law, was added to and built up. The Ten Commandments, the moral law, is eternal. That's why we can't do away with it. It's the law of the universe. But the law of Moses was temporary. It was going to finish at the cross. The Ten Commandments or moral law is called holy, just and good. There's nothing wrong with it. It keeps us from um, misunderstanding what God wants us to do. The law of Moses, the ceremonial law, it said it was contrary. It was not good. In fact, there was an enmity, a hatred that it raised. That's Colossians 2.14. The Ten Commandment law, the moral law, pointed out sin. And the law of Moses, the ceremonial law, pointed out the Saviour. Point number nine, the Ten Commandments we must not break. The ceremonial law we must not keep. The Ten Commandments is spiritual. The ceremonial law of Moses is carnal. The Ten Commandments was a perfect law. The law of Moses made nothing perfect. The Ten Commandments was a law of freedom and liberty. If you lived within it, there's no condemnation. But the law of Moses was a yoke of bondage. No one could keep it. The Ten Commandments was a delight. It was a joy. The law of Moses became a burden with all the different laws and feasts and rules and regulations. The Ten Commandments, Christ magnified the law and made it holy. The law of Moses, Christ abolished when he died on the cross in Ephesians 2.15. The Ten Commandments as the moral law would last till heaven and earth passed away. The law of Moses would only last till the seed come. The seed of the woman would be Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The Ten Commandments, many people are hostile to, but you better not be hostile to it. It's the standard in the judgment. You better start studying it as we covered in Lesson 10. The law of Moses was never used for judgment, and we were not to judge each other over it in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Finally, the Ten Commandments, the whole ten were to be kept, but the law of Moses, the whole law was not to be kept. See Galatians 5, 1 to 3. So, friends, I hope that's a little bit helpful that God has two separate laws. Look on the left-hand side of the cross with me. We have the Mosaic ordinances, the Mosaic rituals, the rituals of Moses. That would be the sacrifice of a lamb. You can see a bullock's head just behind the dove. But a lot of poor people couldn't afford a lamb. They couldn't afford a bullock. So they bring a dove. But the really poor people couldn't even afford a dove. And you'll see there a bunch of grapes lying there and also a bunch of grain and they would bring grapes or grain trusting in the lamb that was slain would be 
a symbol of their forgiveness. The blood would be shed for them, pointing forward to Jesus dying on the cross. So, friends, the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, looked forward to the death of the Lamb of God on the cross. Then on the other side, we see after the cross, the law of Moses is done away with. The laws of rituals, ordinances and ceremonies, the laws of Moses have finished. And then there's Christian ordinances. See there we have the breaking of bread and the cup. We have the communion service is what takes on after the Mosaic ordinances end. The Christian ordinances begin. So the Christian ordinances look back to the death of the Lamb of God. That's what we remember when we celebrate the communion service. <clears throat> Friends, have a look at the top of the screen. What do you see there? Can you see a very strong eternal bridge? That bridge of the Ten Commandments spans the river of time. So the two bodies of law here are the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, and God's Ten Commandment law. One would be temporary and would be done away with at the cross. The other one would be eternal. Here's another illustration that the Ten were written on stone because they're eternal. The laws of ceremonies, the laws of Moses, the ceremonial laws of ordinances and rituals, well, they were temporary. Now, I'm thinking you're going, well, what does it mean they were temporary? Why were they done away with at the cross? Well, when the real Lamb of God died, we didn't need to be sacrificing animals. The laws of ceremonial offerings for sin were done away with. There was no need for a law of burnt offering. There was no need for a law of grain offering. There was no need for a law of peace offering. There was no need for a law of sin offering. There was no need for a law of trespass offering. All of these are found in Leviticus chapters 1, 6, 16, 2 and 6, 3 and 7, 4 to 6, 8, 16 and Leviticus 5 to 7. Friends, none of those were needed because the Lamb of God, behold, John 1, 29, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. The type has met the antitype. And so the Lamb sacrificed in the Old Testament has prefigured that Jesus Christ, the true Lamb of God, would die for sin. Therefore, those ceremonial laws are all done away with. So how can we understand the difference between the ceremonial laws and the Seventh-day Sabbath, the Ten Commandment laws? Well, have a look at my fantastic drawing on the screen. I hope you like it. My dad was in the same art class as Rolf Harris, but I don't think you'll know that from my drawings. So, friends, in Eden, Genesis 2, 1 to 3, we have the seventh-day Sabbath. And there's Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given. Straight after that, in Leviticus 23, the yearly Sabbaths, the ceremonial laws are given, the laws of Moses. And then, in Ephesians 2, 14 and Colossians 2, 16, the ceremonial laws, the feast days, and all those laws of burnt offering and sacrifice, they're all done away with at the cross. Those laws cease. But friends, what about the seventh day Sabbath? Isaiah 66, 22 and 23 says that the Sabbath will be kept in heaven because God's law is eternal. So I hope that that shows you the difference between the Ten Commandments and the seventh day Sabbath, which are eternal laws versus the temporary laws, which were the laws of ordinances, rituals and ceremonies. That takes us back to halfway down page four and question eight. I hope that was helpful to give you a background to the two bodies of laws and which laws were done away with at the cross. What were the ceremonial feast days called? We go to Leviticus 23, 27 to 32, quite a bit of a passage. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, also the 10th day of this seventh month shall be a what? 
a day of atonement. What does atonement mean? Well, it's very simply explained, a day where God and man are made at one meant. God and man come together in beautiful harmony when the sins are forgiven by the guilty sinners. And of course, a lamb is sacrificed for the sins of ancient Israel. So also on the 10th day of this seventh month, it'll be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation, means a gathering for you, Israel. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. We're in Leviticus 23, verse 30. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from amongst his people, God says. 31. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. Now, friends, the Day of Atonement here has been described as a Sabbath, a holy day of solemn rest. And you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month that evening. I'm going to stop there because I have people ask me, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, Pastor, the ninth day of the month, how is that ever a seventh day Sabbath? Friends, the ninth day of the month is not the seventh day Sabbath. It is a ceremonial Sabbath, holy day or rest day. It's talking in this chapter about the day of atonement being a holy day. Verse 32, it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. When do all Sabbaths start? Ceremonial Sabbath, seventh day Sabbath. They all start at the same time. They start from evening to evening. In other words, from sunset to sunset, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. What were the ceremonial feast days called in Leviticus 23, 27 to 32? They were called Sabbaths or rest or holy days. The seventh day Sabbath of creation originated in the Garden of Eden, but the ceremonial feast days were also called Sabbaths. These ceremonial feast days were the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of uh, Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, the Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. They're all mentioned in Leviticus 23, as you can see on the screen. These ceremonial Sabbaths pointed forward to the cross and therefore ceased to be kept after the cross. However, the seventh day Sabbath pointed back to creation and the need for our relationship with God. The seventh day Sabbath was always in sharp contrast to the ceremonial Sabbaths that only pointed forward to the cross and were shadows of the reality that was come to come in Christ. Friends, have a look on the screen. Here's another chart that's not in the lesson. Here are the Jewish feasts in type and anti-type. Type means a copy and anti-type means the original. So have a look at the top. On Nisan 14, the Jews would celebrate the Passover where they'd sacrifice a lamb or a bullock. That would symbolize later that Jesus would die on the cross. So the type was the Passover, the lamb or the bullock slain, and the anti-type, the original, would be when Jesus died on the cross. The Feast of Unleavened Bread there on the chart, Nisan 15, would be a prefiguring, a symbol, a shadow of later on Jesus Christ being buried in the grave. Remember Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven in John chapter 6. You see the typology there. You see the symbolism. Then the first fruits in Nisan 16 was when they started the harvest and they lifted up the first fruits or the grains. It was called in the Old Testament a heave offering. 
And that would prefigure that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the tomb. Then in C. Van 6, there was the Feast of Weeks, and that prefigured and symbolized Pentecost, the harvest of souls. The Feast of Trumpets on Tishri 1 would later prefigure the Second Advent Movement, where people would be warned that Jesus Christ was coming. What an exciting time. That will be dealt with in a future lesson. We've just spoken about the Day of Atonement, Tishri 10. That prefigured the pre-Advent Judgment, where Jesus would go through the books of records and prepare a people to take to heaven. The final feast was the Feast of Tabernacles, and that prefigured the homecoming, going to heaven at the second coming of Christ. So, friends, it's absolutely fantastic. So, in addition to the ceremonial Sabbaths, what other Sabbaths were the children of Israel to keep? We're in question nine at the bottom of page four. We go to Leviticus 23, 37, 38. We're asking after the ceremonial Sabbaths, the seven feast days, were there any other Sabbaths they had to keep? Verse 37, Leviticus 23, these are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy, convocations, holy gatherings, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now, I want you to remember these words because they're going to come up in uh, Colossians 2 very quickly. So in these feasts of the Lord, here's what's going on in them. A burnt offering, a grain offering, a sacrifice and a drink offering. Everything had to be done on its day. Then verse 38 says, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, beside all your vows and besides all your freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. In addition to the ceremonial Sabbaths, what other Sabbath were the children of Israel to keep? Leviticus says in verse in chapter 23, these are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim. So this is seven feast days, the ceremonial Sabbath. You are to keep those besides the Sabbath of the Lord. What Sabbath of the Lord? Well, there's only one other. Genesis 2, 1 to 3, the seventh day Sabbath given at the end of creation week. The same Sabbath celebrated as the fourth commandment in the commandments. So there's a seventh day Sabbath that's eternal, but there were seven feast days, holy days, rest days, or Sabbaths that were also kept in Old Testament times, but were done away with at the cross. The New Testament makes a clear distinction between the ceremonial feast days that were Sabbaths and the seventh day Sabbath. The seventh day Sabbath was in addition to all the other feast day Sabbaths. Question 10. Which Sabbaths does the Apostle Paul say New Testament believers are not to be judged on? And we go to Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Friends, before we go, though, I just want to remind you that the issues in Colossians were there were two main issues that were brewing in the church at Colossae. They were whether New Testament Christians could actually eat meat sacrificed to idols because they've been sacrificed to idols. Therefore, was it corrupted and polluted and defiled? The second question they were debating was whether the ceremonial Sabbaths, the Jews were urging the new Christians to keep the old feast days, the old seven ceremonial Sabbaths or feast days. And so there was all this argument over, are we going to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Are we going to keep the old um, ceremonial Sabbaths, or have they been done away with at the cross? That's the context. We're going to Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Which Sabbaths does the Apostle Paul say New Testament believers are not to be judged on? So let no one judge you 
in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Now, before we go on, food, drink, festival, feast days, new moons or Sabbaths, these Sabbaths that are going to be done away with are a shadow of things to come but the substance is of Christ. I have to ask you, was the Seventh-day Sabbath ever a shadow of things to come? And the answer is obvious, friends, it was not. Which Sabbath does the Apostle Paul say New Testament believers are not to be judged on? The Sabbaths which are a shadow of things to come. That's our answer. So friends, which Sabbaths were a shadow of things to come? The answer is very simply the ceremonial festival Sabbaths. Have a look on the screen, I read the note. Paul makes it very clear which Sabbath days he's talking about. Remember, there are two kinds of Sabbaths in the Old Testament, as you can see on the screen. The Seventh-day Sabbath, pointing backwards to creation, and the ceremonial Sabbaths that were a shadow pointing forward to the cross. Paul clearly states it's the Sabbaths which are a shadow of things to come that the Christian is no longer to be judged on. He's not talking about the Seventh-day Sabbath of creation. He's talking about the ceremonial Sabbaths, such as the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement, etc., etc., etc. Have a look on the screen. Here's a key to understanding these verses in Colossians 2, 14 to 17. The weekly Sabbath is a memorial pointing back to creation. I want to read the screen, top right. The weekly Sabbath was appointed by God at creation before man sinned, over 2,000 years before Moses. Its primary purpose was to commemorate God's rest after creating the world in six days. Hence, the weekly Sabbath can never become obsolete while creation itself stands. So friends, there it is, the Seventh-day Sabbath. Now let's jump under the blue line. We have here the yearly Sabbaths, the ceremonial Sabbaths that were shadows or type. They pointed forward to Jesus dying at Calvary. Let me read to you, bottom left. The yearly Sabbaths, which were not tied to the weekly cycle, were appointed with the sanctuary service at Mount Sinai over 2,000 years after creation and the fall of man. Their primary purpose was to foreshadow Christ's redeeming work on Calvary. They were temporary and became obsolete with the rest of the sanctuary service at the cross. So friends, here we have the yearly Sabbaths, which are also called feasts, festivals and holy days and those holy days eventually became holidays the holy days became holidays and we have holy days today don't we like easter they were holy days but now they're just holidays question 11 we're at the bottom of page five thank you so much for joining us tonight god bless you does Romans 14, 1 to 6 indicate it makes no difference which day is kept as the Sabbath? Friends, enemies of the Sabbath suggest that Romans 14, 1 to 6 says the Sabbath's to be done away with. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be kept. Let's go and see what it says. Verse 1, Romans 14. Paul writes, receive one who's weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. What are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Now here's the verse they say, does away with the Sabbath. One person esteems one day above another, 
another esteems every day alike. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. So friends, what's our question? Does Romans 14, 1 to 6 indicate that it makes no difference which day is kept as a Sabbath? Absolutely not at all. In fact, I'm going to ask you very clearly here, we just read the text, 1 to 6, how many times is the word Sabbath mentioned here? That's right, not once. Zip, zero, zilch. Let me share with you the note. Please read the text very carefully. Well, we just did. The Sabbath's not even mentioned in the text. There is no indication that the day spoken of here is the Seventh-day Sabbath. The context of this passage indicates that some Christians were concerned about eating on a day and others were concerned about not eating on a day. One of the disputes in the early Christian centuries was over whether they should keep Wednesday or Friday as fast days. Yeah, that kind of reminds me today of Lent, don't some people? Um, you know, it's uh, not to eat fish on Fridays. So we have similar things today, don't we? Possibly this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about. Some were eating on a day. Others were not eating on the day. Paul says very simply, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 5. What day is kept as a fast day? It's not important. There's absolutely nothing here to indicate that the Sabbath is being talked about. Friends, as we close this section, for those who might be confused by Romans 14, 1 to 6, I have three points to share. Number one, this text, Romans 14, 1 to 6, and especially verse 5, does not even mention the Sabbath day. Do you know the Sabbath was never an issue in the book of Romans, nor in the New Testament church? It was kept unquestionably. It was never a, a subject of debate. For those of you who've read the Bible through from Genesis to Revelation, you'll know all the way through the New Testament, the ceremonial laws are brought up, the feast days are brought up, circumcision, all these things that were done away with are brought up. But Never is the Sabbath brought up because it was never done away with. It was never an issue. Point number two. The issue here really was overeating or not eating on certain days of the week. In fact, it was to do with Jewish feasting days, but it also might have been to do with Jewish fasting days, and it could have even gone back to the feast days. Point three. Paul states it makes no difference which day is chosen as a fasting day. The seventh-day Sabbath was never an issue here in Romans 14, 1-6. But we are those who try and put the Sabbath in there when it never was in there. We go to our new heading, the Sabbath in the New Testament. We're at the top of page six. Thank you for being with us tonight. Friends, before we go on, I just want to warn you here that Sunday keepers often say Paul was keeping secret Sundays on the side. So I'm going to show you a huge amount of Sabbaths that Paul kept in the New Testament. And you need to watch as we go through these texts to see if there's any secret Sunday worship on the side. What did the Church of Rome say? You will search the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will find no evidence of a change from Saturday to Sunday. Let's go to question 12. On what day did Paul and his company go into the synagogue at Antioch? We go to Acts 13, 14. And when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. Why does it say Antioch in Pisidia? Because there's an Antioch in Syria. It's still there today. So this is Antioch in Pisidia. 
and they went into the synagogue on when? The first day of the week? The new day of worship Sunday? Oh, I'm sorry. No, the scripture says they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. On what day did Paul and his company go into the synagogue at Antioch? They went on the Sabbath. By the way, I'm going to show you six Sabbaths in a row that Paul kept. Someone asked me that question last night. Where did I get the six from? Start counting. On which day did Paul and his company go into the synagogue at Antioch the Sabbath? Question 13, when the Jews left the synagogue, what did the Gentiles, who are Gentiles? I'll say it again. Gentiles are non-Jews. They can be Greeks, Romans, Calathumpians, whatever. When the Jews left the synagogue, what did the Gentiles ask in Acts 13, 42? Did they ask for a new day of worship that they worship on the first day of the week? No. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, begged that these words might be preached unto them the next Sunday, the next first day of the week? Ah, wrong. They begged that these words from Paul might be preached to them when? The next Sabbath. Friends, this is remarkable. The next Sabbath, they're not Jews. They're non-Jews, and the Sabbath is still being kept. Is Paul keeping a secret Sunday here? I can't see it. I can't find it. Paul was not attempting to reach only the Jews, but we see here that even the Gentiles asked that Paul preach to them on the Sabbath. Evidently, they recognized Paul's custom to keep the Sabbath. Question 14. Well, what happened on the next Sabbath? Same chapter, same verses. 44 of Acts 13. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Did they come on the first day of the week? Because they weren't Jews and they wanted to separate from the Jewish church. I'll read it again. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. They came together on the seventh day Sabbath. Who came? Just the Jews? No, the whole city. Jews and Gentiles, the whole city came together to hear the word of God. That's significant. Question 15, where did Paul meet for Sabbath worship at Philippi? Acts 16 verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, here we go again, which day? The seventh day Sabbath, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was wont to be made or prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Where did Paul meet for Sabbath worship at Philippi? They went to the riverside. Do you know why they went to the riverside? There don't seem to be any Jews here. There's certainly no synagogue in town. So they go to the riverside. They go down to the riverside and there it is. There is the river at Philippi. That's a picture from modern times where the Gentile women were. There's a lady there whose name started with L. Does anyone remember her name? I'm sure someone's calling out the name Lydia. Lydia was there. Now have a look on the screen. Here is a modern picture of the river, the riverside spot um, outside Philippi. And notice the river on the left-hand side is is going past, but notice it's diverted on the right and there's a worship place for Christian tourists and there's even a baptismal area. If you see between the two little bridges there, the cement bridges, there's a cross right there in the middle where people can be baptized. Where did Paul meet for Sabbath worship at Philippi? He met at the riverside. Friends, at Philippi, there was no synagogue of the Jews where Paul went on Sabbath. Instead, he met with the believers by the riverside. Even though there was not a Jewish place of worship, Paul still met on Sabbath for Christian worship. Friends, he's not keeping a secret Sunday on the side, and this would have been his best chance. No Jews around. This is the time to start the new day of worship, the first day of the week. 
There's no Jews around. There's no synagogue. And what does he do? He keeps the Sabbath again. Question 16. How many Sabbaths did Paul preach Christ and him crucified at Thessalonica? Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So here there is a Jewish synagogue. Then Paul, as he's what? Oh, I love these words. Thank you so much, Dr. Luke. Then Paul, as his custom was, he's not keeping any other day here. Paul, as his custom was, he's still keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath. He went into the Jewish synagogue to them. And for how many Sabbaths? Three Sabbaths. We've had three. We're now counting another three Sabbaths. Reason with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He's saying this Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ, the one prophesied about. What was the result of his evangelistic campaign? And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks. These are the Gentiles and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. There was a harvest from this mission. How many Sabbaths did Paul preach Christ and him crucified at Thessalonica? Three Sabbaths in a row to Greek men and Greek women. Question 17, how often Paul preached to the Jews and the Greeks at Corinth? We go to Acts 18.4. And Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Interesting. Are the Greeks keeping the first day of the week? No, they're in the Sabbath synagogue on the same day. How often do Paul preach? Every Sabbath is the answer. Now, here's the cruncher text. Have you got it? Did you look it up? How long was Paul at Corinth in Acts 18 verse 11? Paul stays at Corinth, which was a very wicked uh, city in Greece, and he continued there a year and six months. That's a long time, isn't it? 18 months. What was he doing? Teaching the word of God among them. He stayed there a year and six months. So friends, have a look on the screen. Paul held 84 meetings on the Sabbath in the book of Acts. So I'm just going to tally that up. We have a year. How many Sabbaths in a year? Yes, 52. No rocket science needed here. And he was there another half a year. How many seventh day Sabbaths in half a year? So half of, 26, half of 52 is 26, 52 and 26. And we already just went through six extra Sabbaths. Friends, we have 84 Sabbaths. Paul kept 84 Sabbaths in the New Testament. Do you think he was keeping a Sunday on the side? <laughs> it's absolutely incredibly impossible. For 78 Sabbaths, Paul preached every Sabbath. Certainly in the year and a half he was at Corinth, Paul would have introduced Sunday keeping to the new believers if there'd been a change. But there is a strange absence of any indication of Sunday keeping. Instead, we find Paul constantly keeping the Sabbath every week for a year and a half that he lived in Corinth. Join me at the top of page 19. What does the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews give us an example of the rest that we have in Jesus Christ in Hebrews 4.4? For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So what does the writer of the epistle to the book of Hebrews give us an example of the rest that we have in Jesus Christ? That God rested on the seventh day of creation from all his works and we all should rest as well. What does this mean? In discussing the rest that the Christian finds in Jesus Christ, there's no better example than the seventh day Sabbath. The seventh day Sabbath is God's 
symbol of the rest which the believer has in Christ. Because the Sabbath is a symbol of, as you can see on the screen, the relationship that a Christian has with his God. Question 20. Does this Sabbath rest still remain for the people of God today? Now, friends, this text is very important. Hebrews 9, 11, Hebrews 4, 9 to 11. Why? Because people suggest that people keeping the Sabbath are wasting their time because there's still a Sabbath to be kept in the future. So it's not to be kept now. Let's follow that argument through. Hebrews 4, 9 to 11. Paul wrote, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So friends, here's our answer. Does this Sabbath rest still remain for the people of God today? Hebrews 4, 9 to 11. There remains there for a what? A rest for the people of God. Now have a look on the screen. This isn't in your note. Here's the question I'm asking myself. If you were keeping the seventh day Sabbath, and I'm keeping the seventh day Sabbath, and some watching tonight would love to keep the seventh day Sabbath, amen, how can there still be a rest to come? Well, I think that's a pretty good question. And does that nullify what we're doing now, keeping the Sabbath? No. The first answer is we know there's a rest to come, that the seventh day Sabbath will be kept in heaven. If you're unsure about that, go to Isaiah 66 and verse 23. If you were keeping the seventh day Sabbath now, how can there still be a rest to come, friends? The Sabbath, the Shabbat, the rest day is a great symbol of resting from our works and trusting fully in Jesus Christ to save us from all our sins. Therefore, there is still a rest to come. The rest to come is us resting from our works and trusting in Jesus and not working our way to heaven. The other rest to come is that we'll keep the Sabbath in heaven. Friends, what a beautiful text. I thank God for that. The Greek word translated rest here is sabbatismos, meaning Sabbath rest. The scripture is clear that there still remains a Sabbath rest for the New Testament believer and God commands us to enter that same rest. Have a look on the screen. I think in a previous lesson, I just can't remember which one, we discussed ABBA, not the Swedish rock group, but the name ABBA. And we talked about Jesus using this name very intimately in John chapter 17. This is Jesus' name for God. And I think I told you that most commentators say the name is Daddy. It's very intimate. I actually did some more research on this during the past week and found out that a man was in Israel and he overheard a Hebrew or Jewish man say to his 12-year-old son, son, when I ask you to do something, answer me, Abba, Father. I found that absolutely fascinating because Jesus' name for God was Father, I obey. Friends, the name Abba is when Jesus is saying, Daddy, my father, I will obey you. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Now look at that name, Abba, again. Have we seen that name, Abba, Father, I obey anywhere else? Isn't that interesting? The name Abba is the heart of the Sabbath. 
God's name is contained within the Sabbath because we are to rest in him. Friends, isn't that incredible that God's name is hidden within the seventh day Sabbath commandment? Our final heading tonight and the last movements will be rapid ones and all the people said amen is the Sabbath issue. We're asking who changed the Bible Sabbath because God didn't. The issue is now clear. There's absolutely not the slightest bit of evidence in scripture of a change in the day of worship from the Saturday to Sunday. However, the real issue is not keeping Saturday or keeping Sunday. The real issue is, does the little horn have the authority to change God's law? Notice this amazing statement from the Roman Catholic source, Monsignor Louis Segur, Plain Truth About the Protestantism of Today, page 213. The Monsignor, the Catholic priest says, it was the Catholic Church which transferred the rest to the Sunday. Thus, the observance of Sunday by the Protestants is an homage. What's a homage down the bottom? It's respect, reverence and worship. Thus, the observance of Sunday by the Protestants, those who broke away from the Church of Rome, it's a homage, it's an honour they pay in spite of themselves to the plain authority of the Catholic Church. End of quote. Friends, the Church of Rome has always teased Protestants for breaking away from the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, and yet they still keep, Protestants still keep the first day of the week, which is actually the Church of Rome's day. It's the Roman Catholic Worship Day. So what does the Church of Rome think about that? I want you to have a look at this quote while I read the note. What an amazing, incredible admission. The Roman Church actually claims that when a person keeps Sunday, he acknowledges the authority of the Roman Church. To keep God's seventh-day Sabbath is to say very clearly that no person has the authority to change God's law, make no mistake about it, the issue of the Sabbath Sunday controversy is the issue of authority. The Sabbath we keep reveals whom we recognize as supreme authority in our religious life. No wonder God said that the Sabbath is a sign that we know the Lord, Ezekiel 2020. Friends, I want to ask you tonight, what is actually your authority? Is it Jesus Christ and his word? Is it Jesus Christ and the Ten Commandments? Or is it tradition, the rules that men make and change and negate and abrogate? Because, friends, I'm telling you tonight, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and we will stand totally on God's word. Question 21, is it all right to worship by tradition instead of by the commandments of God? Remember what the Church of Rome said in the past? They choose tradition over Holy Scripture. They call it divine tradition. Well, let's go to Mark 7, 7, 9 and 13. What does Jesus say about tradition over Scripture? Mark 7, 7, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Wow, Jesus is really uh, challenging us here to make sure we don't worship him. If we worship him using man's commandments, we're worshiping him in vain. We're wasting our time. Jesus said to the Jews, all too well you reject the commandments of God that you may keep your tradition. 13, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. Is it all right to worship by tradition instead of by the commandments of God? In vain do they worship me, Jesus said, teaching as doctrines the commandments of 
men. Friends, this is a very, very serious charge. We go to question 22. We're on our final page, page eight. Whom did Peter say we should always obey? In Acts 5.21, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey who? God rather than man. Friends, the Bible tells us to follow the rules of the land, to give the rulers over us honour. But where God's rules collide with man's rules, God's rules overtake man's rules. We ought to obey God rather than men. So friends, have a look on the screen. This isn't in the lesson guide. We've looked tonight at the Sunday temple. We've looked at all the Sunday texts, all the first day texts. There they are. Matthew, Mark, Mark, Luke, John, John, Acts, 1 Corinthians. We didn't look at Revelation 1.10. The apostle John who wrote Revelation simply says that I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Those who keep Sunday say he was in the spirit on the first day of the week, the Lord's day, the day of the resurrection. But friends, in Isaiah 58, 12 and 13, Jesus says that the Sabbath is the Lord's day. It's the Sabbath of the Lord. He calls it my holy day. So friends, I don't know how the first day of the week can ever be the Lord's day. When Jesus says the Sabbath is the Sabbath of the Lord, he also says it in Mark 2, 27, 28. The Sabbath is the day of the Lord. The Sabbath is my holy day. Therefore, the Sabbath is the Lord's day. Friends, have a look there. There's the Sunday temple. Let's ask what it's built on. Have a look at the screen. What's the Sunday temple built on in all these first day texts? Friends, we've already shown you what it's built on. It's built on the crumbling foundation of tradition, the laws that men make, the laws that men write and rewrite and change a very dangerous basis. So I'm asking you tonight, are you going to follow truth or tradition? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Are you going to stand on the book of tradition and those who keep the commandments of men? Or are you going to be with those who keep the commandments of God and stand on God's word? What did Jesus say? Look at the text at the bottom of the page. He that is not with me is what? Against me. That's a very, very serious challenge. God wants us to believe and stand on his truth never stand on tradition that's a dangerous place to stand why should the christian obey christ in john 14 15 jesus simply says look if you love me keep my commandments commandment keeping is not done out of fear it's not done in order to get to heaven it's only done out of one thing it's done out of love christians must always remember their motive in obeying the heavenly father is love Christians do not obey because of fear or obligation, but solely because they love Jesus Christ for saving them from sin. Friends, before we go to our last question, I have a question for you. What would be needed to prove that Sunday is the new day of worship? This is where we started tonight. We need a specific text or command by someone of authority to obliterate the Sabbath. Did God give it? No. Did Jesus give it? No. Did the apostles give it? No. Did the New Testament give it? No. Did Paul give it? No. Number two, we need a specific new commandment to observe the first day of the week as a new day of worship. And none of those entities I just quoted changed the day. Thirdly, we'd need clear examples of Sunday worship by New Testament Christians led by the apostles' friends. What would be needed to prove that Sunday is the new day of worship, the day of the sun Sunday, the day of the resurrection? Friends, no proof has been found in this exhaustive Bible study. And remember the Church of Rome very honestly and very proudly said, we change the day. You won't find any evidence from Genesis to Revelation that the Bible changes the Sabbath. The Church of Rome had the authority. 
we change the day? And why do the Protestants follow us and keep our day, even though they broke away from the Church of Rome during the Reformation? That's a very good question. I want to read to you another Roman Catholic quote. This is fascinating. Have a look at this. Please pay attention to this. This is St. Catherine's Catholic Church Centimal, May 21, 1995. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scripture. Let me summarize that. The Church of Rome changed the day. I go on with the quote. But from the church's sense of its own power, people who think that the scripture should be the sole authority, I'll paraphrase it, if you're going to follow the Bible, end of quote, should logically become, well, 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 should logically become, if you're going to, people who think that the scripture should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. They're saying you'll have to keep Saturday holy just like the Seventh-day Adventists. Friends, it's always nice to get a nice reference from someone, especially if you haven't asked for it, and we never asked for it, but that's Rome's reference to Seventh-day Adventists who keep the original day of worship that's unchanged from God's word. Well, it's been a big study tonight. I've left no stone unturned, and I hope you've understood the concepts here. It's quite a challenging study, but I pray that you've grown and learned through it. Question 24, is it your desire to keep holy God's Seventh-day Sabbath because you love him and want to take this time to develop a deeper relationship with God? then I hope you're right like I do. Yes, I want to have that deeper relationship with God. What did the little horn power try to change? God's law and God's times. Do the eight first day texts prove Sunday's a holy day? These eight Sunday texts mention only the first day or the resurrection day followed by the seventh day Sabbath. They show no change. They show no sacredness. Was Sabbath abolished at the cross? We learned that only the laws of Moses or the ceremonial laws, the feast days and the rituals and all the sacrifices were nailed to the cross. Question four, did Paul ever keep the Sabbath in non-Jewish worship services? Yes, Paul often celebrated the seventh day Sabbath with Gentiles who were non-Jews and he could have very easily kept first day of the week with them. Jews wouldn't allow it, but he didn't. They were keeping the Sabbath. How many Sabbaths? Can you remember? That's right, 84 Sabbaths that we have record of. Number five, who changed Sabbath into Sunday? Well, the Church of Rome takes full credit for changing the Sabbath into Sunday and recommends that if you want to follow the Bible Sabbath, you better follow the Seventh-day Adventists. Thank you so much for putting your um, name and uh, the PS lesson number 12 on your envelopes tonight as we do the quiz. We have four response questions. If it is very clear to you that there's only one true biblical Sabbath and that day is the seventh day Sabbath, would you put a tick in box number one? If it's clear to you there's only one true biblical Sabbath and that's the seventh day Sabbath, please tick box number one. Question two, if you're ready to say tonight that you love Jesus so much that you want to begin keeping his seventh day Sabbath on Saturday from now on, and thus I enter into a special relationship with him on the Sabbath, I'm going to ask you to tick box number two. I'm going to ask you to go further than that. I'd like you to contact me, and you know how, from our email list. Question three, if the Sabbath issue is clear to you, but you don't feel you're quite ready to make the decision to keep it, and if you want us to pray that God will help you make that decision, please tick box number three. 
and we'd be happy to pray for you and I will be happy to pray for you. Just SMS me, just contact me, email me. Finally, number four, question four, if you still have some questions that you would like us to answer for you about God's seventh day Sabbath, please tick box number four. There's no box number four on the envelope. So if you've got a question, um, you can draw box number four and tick it, or you can write the question on the envelope and scan that and send that to me via SMS or email as you are doing. So many people have got full marks in the quiz that uh, I'm very, very encouraged by the responses. Let's do the quiz. I'm not gonna tell you uh, what's what tonight, true or false, but I'm only gonna tell you this one false answer. How's that for a hint? Won't tell you how many true. Question one, Jesus changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday when he rose from the dead on Sunday. True or false, I'll say it again. Jesus changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday when he rose from the dead on Sunday. True or false? Number two, there's no record of any Sunday being kept as a regular day of worship in the New Testament church. True or false, there's no record of any Sunday being kept as a regular day of worship in the New Testament church. True or false. Thank you for writing true or false in your answers. So there's no T's that look like F's, no F's that look like T's. Number three, the book of Acts records 84 Sabbaths as kept by the Apostle Paul. I think that should be pretty easy. True or false? Number four, the issue in the Sabbath Sunday question is loyalty to God versus loyalty to an earthly power. The earthly power is the little horn power. So the issue in the Sabbath Sunday question is loyalty to God versus loyalty to the little horn power. Our final quiz question tonight, the New Testament records many instances where Paul and the New Testament church met on the seventh day Sabbath, even after the resurrection. All right, there is our quiz questions tonight. And I told you there was only one false one. Question one, the answer, Jesus changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday when he rose from the dead on Saturday. Is there any scriptural proof for that? Bzz, absolutely not, that'd be false, which would make question number two true, question number three true, question number four true, and question number five true. I told you it was one false, so all the rest had to be true. And I hope, that you've enjoyed going through our quiz tonight. And I think it's always enjoyable to uh, stimulate our minds with God's truth and remember the wonderful things that we've learned. Friends, tonight we're finished in Daniel 7, Daniel 7.25, we've finished the little horn power. We found out the Sabbath was not changed. Nothing in the New Testament changed the Sabbath from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. What are we gonna discover next week? We're gonna discover what date Jesus Christ was born. We're gonna find out, did Jesus begin his ministry on time? We're gonna find out what date Jesus Christ was baptized. We're gonna find out the exact date that Jesus Christ was crucified. We're gonna find out why the Jewish nation was rejected by God after nearly 500 years of mercy. And finally, we're gonna find out, is God concerned with being on time? That's the lesson we're gonna do next time, next week. Please prepare lesson number 13. It's probably not a lesson you can just sit down and catch up next week. This is a lesson you need to sit down and look very carefully through this week. It's the Bible's greatest time prophecy. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, I wanna thank you for how wonderful your word is and how amazing the truths that are buried deep in your word. Father, tonight we have looked at the seventh day Sabbath. We've looked at the ceremonial Sabbath. We've looked at the eternal nature of the Ten Commandments. We've looked at the ceremonial law. 
which passed away at the cross and thank you for making it so clear that by understanding your two systems of law that we won't get them all mixed up and do array with the wrong laws that weren't done away with at the cross. So thank you, Father, for your love, mercy and grace. Be with everyone who hears these words. Bless God and direct their lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Let all the people say, Amen. You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the Book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word. That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.